Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. I'm mad, Sherry. You are. You know, with years and years of sobriety, I I did not anticipate being thrown into the situation we've been in this, this last week. By the time this podcast publishes, it'll be several weeks in the rearview mirror, but what we have just lived through um, just surprised me and... I guess I'm at the stage of it far enough into the experience that I'm just angry at this point. How do you feel? I don't know if I, I'm angry. Um, I, I guess maybe that's not saying it won't happen. I'm just shocked, I guess, or sad, or I guess I was a little optimistic or oblivious. I'm so surprised is probably more what I'm thinking. Well, for our listeners, we should point out a few things. This is a little bit more of an in-real-time therapy session for Sherry and I, because we're going to talk this through. And as opposed to relating an old experience and trying to help you find a path through your own experience as a result, you're just going to hear some raw reactions and another thing to point out, I know we aren't known for our sound quality to begin with, but if it sounds funny, it's because we're we a are place. Yeah, we're recording on the road. We don't have our our fancy microphone, and um, so apologize if it sounds funnier than normal. Before we get into our main topic, let's do a listener question, Sherry, which just so happens to relate. Listener question. What is the danger for the alcoholic in recovery for believing that they are not like everyone else with a drinking problem? Can a marriage recover if the sober partner is living in denial, even in recovery? It's a pretty good one. It is. So they're meaning like, are they asking like the the person who's a drinker? They're not like everyone else, and they'll be able to drink again, or just in general, they're not uh, like everyone else. In in the you know the preamble, the write up, the run up to the actual question, it definitely sounds like that person says, "I can't go to AA meetings because I'm not like those drunks," and um, you know I don't relate to people who've had that kind of rock bottom. And yeah, I had a little bit of a drinking problem, and yeah, it's probably better that I not drink right now but i'm not an alcoholic so rejecting the label which isn't necessarily inherently a bad thing but very so for me the challenge with that kind of denial is if you're not accepting the trauma that you caused your family if you're not accepting the fact that alcohol is no longer an option for you period end of story um if you're not willing to go there then the chances of relapse are just super 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 high because there's so much mental gymnastics involved in early sobriety so much am i an alcoholic or or not 
I didn't sleep under the gutter. I never beat my wife. Um, I, you know, I didn't lose my job. I didn't do all these things. So maybe I'm not an alcoholic and all of that already exists. And then, so if this, if this person is kind of living in denial, I think it's really easy for those internal arguments that we have to be tipped in the wrong direction and cause us to say, you know what? I've decided I can drink. I'm, I'm clearly not as bad as everyone thinks I was, or my wife thinks I was, or, or I have been brainwashed into believing I was. So I must not be an alcoholic. I think I'll go buy a bottle of vodka. And then things go bad. Did I ever act that way? I mean, you certainly had your I'm not like them moments. Yeah. But I guess I knew when you were trying for sobriety this last time that stuck. You were... You were doing things just enough different that I knew that there was something that was working for you or something that was going to keep you on track. When people say, well, I'm not like them, and they just kind of dry drunk it, and then they then that doubt and stuff creeps in, they just haven't found the community and the thing that works for them for their recovery. Um, yeah. So I think that's that's one reason like I felt like yours was different one thing that really has helped me is recognizing that this is a progressive disease it only goes one direction and everyone is equal the only difference between people is starting point so i you know i I started with a stable family i started out drinking you know Often, but drinking for social reasons and, yes, for stress relief. And it was an adult, you know, a sign of adulthood that you drink at the end of a work day. But I started out with pretty high standards for behavior from the standpoint that, you know, even though my father and grandfather drank every day, public drunkenness was not acceptable. In fact, even though my father continues to drink every day and has my whole life, right, I can only think of two times when I saw him drunk. And I think that's kind of fascinating to me. It it always has been kind of fascinating to me. But so, like, public drunkenness was not okay. Um, being nasty to your uh, spouse was not okay. Um, you know, uh, so, so, it, so it was a pretty... Yes, there was a lot of drinking, but there was a pretty high standard. And so... In order to to get to the point that I got to, I had to cross a lot of lines. Yeah. If you start out in a family where, you know, just getting rip-roaring drunk is the norm and, and everybody does it and that's all okay, you're starting at a lower point. So the idea that you can get to a, a deep bottom faster is pretty obvious. So all that to say... Whenever I look at somebody on the spectrum who is more kind of clearly obnoxious, belligerently a drunk than I am or was, I just, I know that they just had a different starting point. It's not their fault. That's where I was going. I'm not in the gutter yet, but I'm going there. I'm not in end stage alcoholism yet, but I'm going there. And so the idea that those people are different than me doesn't resonate for me. The idea is those people had a different starting point. And um, I think that because you had a stable family and you had stable support and there were expectations and you received a lot of love and self-confidence, you had a lot of self-love and confidence, I think, in the beginning. 
And then when you were realizing you maybe, I don't want to speak for you, but maybe when you realized you were missing some of that, um, and it was a coping mechanism, alcohol was a coping mechanism, I think when you were searching for sobriety, that's something you probably kind of figured out a little bit, like, what was missing, what's missing in me, why am I doing this? You were more self-reflective, whereas some people don't have that sort of experience, I think, with them. Yeah. Families that maybe talk or share or just by their nature and their outward appearance and your home life inside appearance was all very consistent. So you're like, there's something missing here in my family. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, you? yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, I just see that there's sometimes like, you know, kids that don't have a stable environment, you know, their self-confidence is bad and there's no place to turn to so they don't know what and what a healthy lifestyle is like yeah yeah d- i definitely feel like and then that goes into adulthood in the place that we're in now in long-term sobriety i i definitely have an advantage because yes i have underlying causes for my alcoholism but yes there was so much stability in my upbringing that it helps me to move past those a lot faster. Well, like, you... I wasn't sexually abused. If I was... I mean, I can't even imagine. If you're sexually abused as a child, that's going to take years and years and years of work to to move past to a healthy place, I have to imagine. I certainly can't speak as an expert on that. But, so I, you know, I think the growth has to be continuous. And if you're able to get over your hurdles faster then the growth can move into a positive place. Does Yeah, and I guess what I, one thing that I'm adding is like you were able to recognize, oh, these are feelings I've had before mm-hmm. once you started getting more confident and sober. You could return to those feelings or you recognize them. Some people don't even know what they are, mm-hmm. so they can't recognize them necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Some of that feeling of safety, stability, self-confidence, yeah. joy, happiness. That's right. That starting point is important. Good point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the 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 denial of reality is, I think, very dangerous. It, if you talk about red flags, that's that's pretty high on my list of concerns about relapse. How if you can't acknowledge how bad it was, what is there to keep you from doing it again? I mean, other than ultimatums from your spouse or threats, if you don't acknowledge that it was bad, you're going to be willing to go there again, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's great question, listener. Very, um, uh, dis- I guess, disturbing or ugh, makes me nervous for oh. you, caller. Yeah. Listener. Thank you for that question. Um well, as usual, I try to pick a question that's going to tie in with the rest of what we're going to talk about. You and I, we have made the intentional decision in discussing before we started recording that we're going to keep this, um, we're going to be very unspecific as we talk about people. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that I think the and talk about experiences. The yeah, the experiences and situations are so fresh that I don't know that we I don't know that I trust myself to make a solid long-term decision about 
how revealing we are about the people involved. Be so if because I'm still like I said I'm still kind of angry. So it's if it's not a good time to make solid thoughtful decisions then we should just avoid and do our best to be generic about the people involved so that and not specific so that we don't later regret the level of specificity but it does you know there and I know you're probably anticipating that I was going to say this Sherry it does bother me from the standpoint that I love the advice um given by Augustin Burroughs a famous memoirist who's written a bunch of best-selling books you know he says to the people around him if you don't want me to talk about the way you've behaved poorly then why don't you behave better um you know the people around us know we record this podcast and they know that i'm a writer and if they don't want us to talk about the bad way they're behaving then don't behave poorly around us which would be just fine with me because then i wouldn't be angry right now so so a good night's sleep made you angry waking up. Yeah, I guess so. How, how you like that? No, I just think these are the stages of reacting to processing situations, and that mm -hmm. I'm I've flowed nicely right into the anger mode. Yeah. Let, let's. I feel like some of mine. I know we're gonna. Well, some of the things we're gonna talk about. Maybe I'm just. Some of them, and 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 it's sad because I do care about these people a lot. Um, like even the person that's most on the fringe of our experiences this weekend, I'm kind of like, well, I guess you're going to do you and you have to learn the hard way. Mm -hmm. And that makes me sad that I feel this way about one person. Um, because I, you know, I feel like I'm doing that stay in your own lane sort of thing and, you know, can't control other people. And it makes me sad that I feel, which there's some truth to that. Yeah. And it makes me feel sad because of the person it is. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, I don't have any notes for this recording, which is unusual. I usually have, uh, like, like an outline of how we're going to go. So we're just freewheeling it today. Let's start at the beginning. Um, so the one thing that I think we do need to be specific about is to acknowledge that we are in Indiana. We, oh, we, were, yeah, we yeah. have family here, but we also came for the Indianapolis 500, which we have attended so often as a family and before our kids as a couple. And before that, I went just with my friends. And before that, I went with my parents. So this has been a long-term family tradition. There are, uh, they announced the attendance. I don't remember what it was. It was over 300,000 this year maybe 325,000. So it's the world's largest sporting event from a spectator standpoint, because there's nowhere else where you can fit that many people. And I would have to say, I think conservatively that 90% of the people were drinking. It's not heavily attended by kids. There are kids. Our kids have gone. I went when I was a kid. And we got a lot of looks. From people, I think, like, oh, you brought your children. Well, the, I from mean, other spectators. The first year we brought our oldest child for the first time, <laughs> the people in, in front of us who it's, you know, we have good seats and we sit in the same seats every year and the people around us sit in the same seats every year. So it's kind of like assigned seats. 
um, they turned around and said, oh my God, you have a child <laughs> because of how drunken and poorly behaved I had been for so many years. They were shocked that we had, that we had children. That I actually procreated with you. Exactly. But so just setting the scene, I mean, you know, I'm in my seventh year of sobriety. I've been to the Indy 500 sober a number of times now. We did, we did skip a few years because of COVID and, and graduations because it is right at the end of the school year, Memorial Day weekend. So, um, so but but I have definitely been sober and I knew exactly what to expect. But I'd have to say, I think conservatively, that 90% of the people there are consuming alcohol. They're not all drunk, although most most are to some degree. I mean, the race starts at noon or shortly thereafter. So people are drinking in the morning. This is a drinking in the morning event for so, so, so many. And in our group, we had 16 tickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I and our underage children and then one other kid of another family who was also underage were the only ones not drinking everyone else in our group. Well, I guess one other adult. Um, but so, so yeah, it's, it's a heavy consumption event. And the thing that really got me is we have kind of, we've gotten old enough that we've turned over a generation Meaning that, um, yes, in our group of 16 tickets, there have been kids all throughout. But now those kids are becoming adults. And some of the adults that usually filled those 16 seats are not coming anymore. And the kids in our group are inviting their friends and they're all in their young 20s now. And they hit it hard. So when I was thinking this morning before we hit the record button, one of the things that struck me is the, the so these are kids that are our kids age ish, a little bit older than our kids. They've grown up seeing us once a year for the race. I don't want to pretend like we're, we were constantly in their lives. We right. weren't. But when I was in my young 20s, if I was with my parents and my parents friends, I, I would have drank. Sure. But you wouldn't have gotten like that. I would not have gotten like that. It, well, it make I'm just I know I'm reverting to something, diverting to something else. But it makes me think of our son who graduated high school last year. We had a collective um, graduation party, and it was about one of our friends who own um, a rental spot, and his high school band played, and we had alcohol for the adults. And I kept saying to the moms that I was in charge of this with, I don't want to disclude the dads, but it was the moms in charge this time. I was like, we're gonna, they're gonna bring in beer. They're going to sneak in. I was, I was surprised at the brazenness of some of those high schoolers that came after the food was served because we left the party open that just carried in their own beer. And I was walking past looking at them. I'm like, you may be 18. You may have graduated a few days ago, but you're still under 21. And these kids know me because a lot of these kids, we all went to preschool with and they were just drinking and i was shocked i would have been mortified i couldn't do that as an 18 year old i wouldn't i would have hidden the alcohol or gone to the a party with the adult the adults and then gone off to the park or the woods or yeah or the party that the parents were gone or the party that the parents weren't at and that's where you would have drank yeah and i mean it's it's like there's like 
and I, I know we hate the word shame, but there's like no shame in it. And they're just, uh, they were just of not, not at the party or for our high school's son's graduation, but I was shocked at, yes, they're 22, 23 years old. Yeah, we're not just talking that they were drinking beer. We're talking that they coerced a ride, which I'll give them a ton of credit for that. They weren't drinking and driving, but they coerced a ride. So there's a bit of like tailgating that can take place before going into the to the racetrack. Um, that's never anything we've ever participated in because you're allowed to bring your own beer in. So we've always just packed the cooler and gone on in and start watching the festivities, but these guys coerced a ride to get to the track early so they could sit in this parking lot for hours before we got there and drink. And I mean, they were, they were doing shots. And, you know, one of the things that was, there's a lot of things that were triggering to me, which man did not anticipate that. One of the things was they were doing Fireball. Fireball. Those little Cinnamon bottles. whiskey. The little bottles, They had bottles, that little yeah. bucket that you buy with them all in, like, the little plastic candle bucket that has a lid. And they were... And they were drinking those Shooting those. those and we, we have someone in our Echoes of Recovery group whose husband took his own life. And I... We have now, very sadly, had a uh, unacceptably large number of... Uh, the spouses, the drinkers in our Echoes of Recovery group. So the drinkers aren't in our Echoes of Recovery group. The the people who are in Echoes of Recovery are the loved ones of alcoholics and their alcoholic spouses. A large number of them have passed away now directly related to alcohol. And, but that first one, when it happened, I went to support her and try to be helpful. And one of the things that I did was clean up the fireball shooters out of their side yard where he would drink them and just throw them. And there were hundreds of them. I mean, there was never any attempt made to, you know, clean that up or not be disgusting or whatever. And there were hundreds of them. And I felt so bad for her, for her experience. It became very vivid as I was cleaning those shooters up. And so it's triggering for me when I see people drinking those fireball shooters. Um, and yeah, just, just brazen. But as I think through how we answered that listener question, you know, I was raised with constant drinking, but there was some level of decorum yeah. associated. I mean, you feel silly saying that word, but there was. But here I was. These are kids that saw me at that race getting out of control drunk. And so... It's just all clicking for me as we're talking. Maybe or the they didn't before. feel any need to to uh, hide or be moderate in front of me because even though I'm an adult, they'd seen me be obnoxiously drunk. Yeah. So maybe it's my fault. And Well, I wouldn't say it was your fault. I think that perhaps there was some level of influence, one in particular, um... But, you know, because you drank, you drank a lot the night before and we all stayed together. You were really into the race. I'm not saying you were, you know, not obnoxious, but a lot of the times you were really into the race. And so you would talk to those kids about the laps and how, and, and our kids, as you've got beer on your breath, like talking to them about the race and the excitement that 
was you felt because it was your you know your favorite sporting event to attend and watch so i think that there was like this alcohol enthusiasm the night before drinking to have fun and relax and catch up with our old friends that we don't see on a regular basis and then adding that level of enthusiasm and excitement that you brought to this kids you know our kids generation that because they would see you be so excited about all the racers and all the cars and the knowledge and so it's like it's just they think that it has to go hand in hand they don't think you can have that level of excitement excitement and enjoy the race without it I mean and I'm not saying these kids were stupid because I was sitting next to one of them and I had two in my ear and they knew a lot about what was going on for the sporting event they weren't just drunken buffoons necessarily not knowing what was going on so they had done their homework they had followed these racers they know things but it was like they just don't they don't see it being able to be peeled apart that you can enjoy it without being so intoxicated yeah yeah, I I was um, yeah so triggered, annoyed, um, but they are. I, I I was able to kind of detach in the moment and say, "Huh." I thought, you know, for a couple of these kids, we like I said, we've grown up. They've grown up with us going to the race together. And I thought it was going to be really fun to hang with them. And I was able to say, you know what, I don't, I'm not going to engage with them at all. They've been doing shots all morning and I don't want any part of this. That was easy for me until the very end of the race. And, and it's, it's interesting. It's probably something you've witnessed and I have witnessed less. But the level of intoxication would kind of go in and out. Like at one point before the race, I didn't think one of them in particular was going to make it through the race. He was mm-hmm. kind of, un- didn't recognize me when we bumped into each other, just kind of that level of out of it. But that was probably shortly after they had done, you know, their fifth or sixth or seventh or whatever it was shot. And then, you know, kind of getting some food in his belly and then just sipping on beers. He seemed to kind of come back to earth a little bit and it would kind of fade in and out. But toward the end, he was, he said something goofy about if if one of the drivers wins, he's going to do something, you know, and get arrested. And I just kind of ignored it. But then you heard him say that, um, you know, he, he wanted to do that with me being there, with me being present. Yeah, because you used to joke and say, like, yes. if one of your racers won the race, you would go jump in the pond that's yeah. on site. And he said something like that, but he added like naked to it. And then if I do get arrested, I have to, I want to do it in front of Uncle Matt. And which I'm just to be specific, I'm not truly his an blood uncle. uncle. Just that's what he calls me. Yeah. But so, so that shifted everything for me. That the fact that even at in that level of intoxication, he and so yeah he. I mean, he was uh, not embarrassed by that level of intoxication. He was emulating me. And uh, that's super disturbing because 
it's it's like they only want to know part of the story. Like they all know I'm sober and I have been for a long time. And they know we've written and published a book about it. And they know that this is what we do for a living. I mean, nobody asks very detailed questions, but they roughly know that. But they, the fact that you can know us the way they do and only think about the what they think of as what the good parts or the glory days and not appreciate the fact that it almost cost me my family because they're and not connect those dots right i mean but you know no one thinks that they'll ever end up like that you were 25 years down the road from where they are i mean or i don't know i just rough math but 20 25 years down the road they don't see that far ahead because they're young adults well, that makes me really sad. It makes me really sad that, you know, there's all this societal pressure. I mean, <laughs> these are kids that are in college or just graduated college. So, I mean, think that through. Think what that time of your life is like. There's drinking everywhere, and it's just the norm. And so the fact that they're compartmentalizing and only looking at Oh, this is how Matt used to behave. This is cool. That makes me sick to my stomach, honestly. So, I will have to do some communicating to share that there's more, there's certainly more to our story, and it uh, didn't end up in any way, you know, glorious. So, just really, really sad and and hard to watch and like I said I was going to be easy to it was easy for me to check out and say whatever you do you I don't care but when he brought me into it at the end like oh I, w- I want to be like you basically Ugh, heartbreaking heartbreaking so so that was one of the disturbing things um uh, be Beyond that kind of specific instance, just being around, you know, you and I, with the lives that we've created for ourselves post-alcohol, we don't end up in situations where 90% of the population is drinking and the majority of that 90% is getting wasted. We just don't end up in situations like that very often. So, uh, I don't know. What do you, like, overall, that... An event you want to keep attending? I don't think it's something I want to attend all the time. I I actually am, like, that one is further in the past that I've thought about it. I remember when we were choosing the seats, we had, like, a strip of, like, four rows that we were kind of... Of our 16s, four, 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 and four. So I was like, I do not want to sit next to the four young men Mm -hmm. that were all getting drunk mm-hmm. and then there was a, f- a f- female who's graduated college and she's got a job but she has a lot of drinking in her posts she's mm-hmm. a little bit older and then there was one of the sober drivers um from that group mm-hmm. uh so i was like well i'd rather sit you know mm-hmm. with our f- adult friends that are our age i don't the old adults i guess yeah because i was like i do not want to deal with all that and i ended up getting plunked next to one and then, like I said, two were, the three other ones were, of the young men were above me. 
And I'm not saying it wasn't disturbing or sad. I wasn't thinking about it. I kind of took on this, like, I don't know. Like, I was trying to converse with them. And you're right. There was a level of in and out of intoxication. But the guy I ended up sitting next to, he actually had to fly that next morning early Mm -hmm. to go start a job. Yeah. So he was trying to keep it together and a little bit more, I think, than some of the other ones. But the one that we're closest with, I felt like this need to like look out for him and like and and uh, be mothering him and like I would offer him carrots and then I would be like, it's time to go to the bathroom. And you're right, like he he wasn't like fall down drunk and he wasn't stepping on people and he's very athletic, so I think that that helps him a lot. He's very graceful. Because it is a cluster to get out of those stands that are filled with coolers, which, and so you're kind of climbing around. And he was always very kind and was offering me help, like he was treating me very respectfully. But I did want to, like, kind of keep an eye on him because his mother wasn't there. And I just felt like I needed to kind of keep an eye on him and, like, keep engaging him and checking in with him. Where at the beginning I was like, I do not want to sit around all this. Yeah, that's very interesting because I maintained that desire to be disengaged from it. When I saw how drunk he was getting, I was not, and I knew his mother wasn't there. And my initial thought was, oh, well, we'll keep an eye on him for her. And I was like, nope, if you're going to act like a buffoon, you're on your own. I wanted nothing to do with that. Yeah, like it's at very the, interesting that you had that, at the that nurturing instinct. Tailgating um, a scenario, I was just, they were in the back of the car and we had... parked too deep so I was like staying the furthest away from them as I possibly could yeah so I was not aware and then we left to go into the race and um so we were all you know we weren't in a big pack so we all entered so I was like yeah I don't want to be around them I could see what was going on at the a little bit while I was going on at tailgating and I was kind of shocked that that took hold but I guess that's just what happens when you love someone yeah and not saying you don't love them. No, I... Just... I I think this is just another indication of that there is a gender component and that there is a natural, nurturing, motherly thing. Because I also think about the fact that his mother, when I was drinking heavily, she would have made sure I got out of there. Because okay. I was pissed, usually, and she's the one that took care of you a lot. Yeah. So I think there is... That is a natural... Hard to understand it, instinctual thing. So then the other instance, incident, you know, a few days of calm went by, and then you went out to dinner with, I think the way we should describe this is just a group of friends and close friends or family. So as to not be any more specific than that. Um, So it was you and three other women, and... It it was, pres- you know, you guys, the way you described it was, oh, we just want a little girls' night. And knowing who the people were, I thought, and you said, we're going to go to dinner and, and then maybe go to a few of the bars from when we were in college and just, just see what's changed. Just check them out. And since I know you don't drink, um, honestly, I, I thought that's exactly what it would be and it'd be like, you know, to put it in time, like a time frame for people to help them understand, like you're in bed by 10 o'clock, like you have dinner at seven and you 
go to three or four bars to check them out yeah. not, and just kind of get a refresher on, oh, they've painted and they moved these things around <laughs> and, oh, this one still looks cool or whatever. And that just would be it. Of, so it never yeah. even occurred to me that it would be anything other than that. Is that what your expectation was going in? Yeah, and just, like, revisit some of our college, yeah. you know, neighborhood and haunts and see what was new and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I knew there was a, you know, a fancy chocolate shop that was talked about. Like, oh, we have to go there for a little dessert and, yeah. And yeah, was, sounds lovely. Sounds sophisticated and adult. Yeah. But instead... At dinner, so the very first stop that you made, the other three people in the group started doing shots. Yeah, that was shocking. Yeah. It felt, I don't know, it just felt really weird because I don't, I mean, we were on a patio table. Yes, this is a college bar, but also at that time, like it has really great food. So this is like where the parents, for parents weekend, would go to eat. Yeah, I remember, you know, I remember it being like a little expensive. I remember when we were in school, I didn't go there much. Yeah. Because it was a little more expensive. Sorry. It was definitely like a parents' weekend place. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I know, like, towards the end of the night, you could, like, beers, but their beers were more expensive. They didn't have a whole lot of tap stuff. So, yeah, it was like, or I always jokingly said, well, this is where the rich kids go. Yeah. Or the but kids so, that didn't want to get shit faced. So, shockingly, sitting on a patio table... We haven't, we've haven't even ordered our food. We just ordered an appetizer and then it was two shots were ordered during that time. Yeah. Also with everybody drinking an alcoholic beverage. Except for you. Yeah. But so, so it goes on and at some point you recognize that, cause you didn't even drive. You weren't even the driver. You're all together, but you didn't start out as the driver. I, I knew that on I'll back. I'll correct you, okay? Because um, that wouldn't be like any podcast where I didn't correct you. My intent was always to be the driver, whether or not anybody in the group had two beers, whatever, two mixed drinks. I was still going to be the driver, okay? Because there's we're yes. in a rural environment, and um, there are lots of deer that are on the road. So my thought process to that, and what I made very clear in the car was, if a deer pops out and someone has beer on their breath and they wreck they may not come up you know intoxicated but there's no sense taking that chance yeah and also i wanted to be in i know this sounds bad i wanted to try to be in control of the scenario making sure i felt like i felt like of the group of people i was with that i would be the most responsible and sound mind but you said as they started to get intoxicated you had to steal the keys away from the person whose car y'all were Well, because I was worried that at the end of the night, when it came to the car, even if we had stopped then, that there would be that force of, oh, I'm fine, I'm going to drive. So so I, like, sober, she had agreed that you'd be the driver, but you were afraid she'd start drinking and then be like, I'm going to drive to my car. I'm fine, I'm fine, exactly. You know, I've played this game before, Matt. I don't know if you know, like, how we make agreements when we're sober and then it all goes out the window after Oh, yeah. So yeah, so I took the keys out of the out of the purse and put them in mine, and there was a little like, what are you doing? And I was like, remember we talked about, you know, me driving, and um, I'm just going to keep them with me, so then I, I know where they are, and it's easy for me to find out. I have to go shuffle them through your big purse, because I just have my little tiny travel purse. So it was kind of the end of it, but they were like, well, what if I'm fine? I'm like, I don't care. The deal was, they were still rational enough, deal was, 
whoever, whatever, I'm driving. I've had zero to drink, and zero will be drank. Yeah. So, it it continues. It just gets sloppy. I know you said... Two of them you, were like, I'm done. Cut me off. No more. And I would say, they're not drinking anymore to the person who would bought the shots. And But you had said at one point, you even wished that you had just said, listen, we're leaving. And, yes. And kind of... times. But... But you're, you're, it's three against one. You're wrangling three drunks. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I mean, that it, I'm pretty stubborn and hard-headed, and it, wrangling me can be as bad as three drunks, but uh, there's a pretty hard-headed person in this group, too, so. Well, and then one that was, hadn't gone out in, in a long time and really felt like they needed to do this, and one that I felt like needed to kind of show off. I that shit, too. Like, oh. I, I, I work it. so hard. I I'm owed this. Like yeah. You, so you're owed wrecking everyone else's night, and you're owed being obnoxious. And this is where we can tell that you're angry now. It's coming through. Yeah, and I'm this not. is the one I'm angry about. I'm not angry about the Indy 500. So, so you know, and and also quite honestly, like that wasn't nearly as ridiculous like the behavior wasn't as ridiculous so yes i i did also want to i mean but if i would have said looking back if i would have realized when i should have called it it would have been 9 30 9 45 yeah i mean that's when i should have called it yeah but there was a place that i used to go to when we were there that played darts and i was like okay well let's go there because maybe playing pool or darts now i know that probably seems really unsafe <laughs> to our listeners, <laughs> she's yeah, she's got a gangle of drunk ladies that she's. But I was like, maybe we can go there because I just didn't drink much at that place. I was always afraid they didn't wash their glasses very well, hmm. so it was I thought a high end place. It was a high end place. I actually never went there. Actually, right? it's cleaned up a little bit. I'm like kind of. I was slightly impressed. They've cleaned it up, but so I thought, well, maybe if we go there and they could drink some waters, play some something to concentrate and then because i was like well i don't want to get them in the car what if they all start getting drunk too so i wanted to try to get a little bit of sobering getting sick too huh, getting sick sorry getting yeah. sick you know it's interesting you even said this in the aftermath it's interesting how optimistic you were you brought a bunch of drunks to another bar and thought they were going to drink water yeah that's interesting. Well, because we had all talked about, ooh, let's go there and play darts or pool earlier in the evening. Right. And I was like, well, their hands will be busy. They can't drink. Well, I didn't... Obviously, I've been out of the game a while. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're optimistic. And I am... This is why I'm not an optimist, people, because it gets... You get fucking crushed, and yeah. I'd rather just be a pessimist. Yeah. Expect so, the worst. But, you know, I thought, well, they'll be busy with their hands if we play pool or darts, and, you know... Then they won't. But then it was more shots. Yeah. So, to bring it to the traumatic conclusion, so you had texted our son, and it was a group chat that I'm on, because he's a big uh, NBA, he's a big Denver Nuggets fan, and you had texted him to ask if the Nuggets won the first game of the NBA playoff, the finals. And that was right at 10. And so I saw you texted and he texted back. And I thought, oh, well, if she's thinking about Joey and the fact that he was watching the game, she's got to be at home. Because you were sleeping in a different house. 
yeah. on that night. Yeah. So I was not expecting you home. And when I saw that text, again, thinking this was dinner and a couple of peek your heads into a couple of bars, it never occurred to me that anything beyond that would take place. And so when I saw that text about the Nuggets, I thought, oh, Sherry must be home to the house she's staying at. Uh, good for her. And then the next, so that's 10 o'clock. Next thing I know, my phone's ringing at 1.15 a.m. And it's you calling to say that you and one of the other people in your group who is wasted have been left by the side of the road, side of the highway, frankly, um, and just deserted by the other, uh, by the person who owned the car. Yeah. And he needed me to come get you, which I was happy to do, but it was a half hour away and it was on the side of an interstate, not even just like a, like a country highway that we have a lot of here in Indiana. Yeah. Well, we were on the frontage road piece of it, but. Yes, along the highway. A truck driver could have spit on you as he drove by. You were there was a there was a cement barrier between you and the highway, but you literally you were ten feet from the the highway, ten feet from the the right lane of the highway. So so uh, and at one fifteen in the morning. So it had just evolved and evolved and gotten worse and worse and it got and uh, as people who are intoxicated are known to do the owner of the car had gotten was telling you you were driving the wrong way and you're you're going the wrong direction and some of what she, she said was irrational didn't what didn't line up with reality right right in that drunken state one of the we said that there was you and three. One of them had been dropped off by this point, so it yeah. was just I you and two left. And the one was, one was passed out in the back seat, and the other one was going nuts. And eventually, I think we've learned one of the negatives of these cars nowadays, where the key fob just has to be in the vicinity, yeah. and the car will start. You had the keys. You never gave up the keys. Yeah, they were always in my purse down by the floorboard, but at some point. I pulled the car over, and then I ended up turning the car off, or they reached over and turned the car off. So I was like, okay, fine, you know, they're, and then I was like, shoot, it's those key fobs. But then I thought that I had stepped far enough away when, because eventually there was getting out of the car with, alongside the road, it was not busy on that frontage road, and I thought I had stepped far enough away from the car that the car wouldn't go because it was turned off. But I was still, I guess, close enough to the car. So they were able to drive away. And I was getting the... So the drunk driver doesn't even need the keys anymore. Yeah, because just I needs was, the Yeah. Just needs the designated driver to be in the vicinity. Yeah, and I couldn't believe That's that... That's scary. It, I know. I couldn't believe that they drove a fucking half an hour with that. I mean, my car makes all kinds of beeping sounds when I've taken my purse in and I've left it running or I have it on the outside of the car to pull into the garage... Yeah, once it's started, I don't think it's going to automatically stop. And I was like pushing buttons. I thought, oh my God, can I push buttons? Because they were taking off a little slow. And I was like, maybe, you know, maybe we'll see them down the road. Maybe it will have stopped. But it doesn't. No. And 
without getting into all the details leading up to her driving away, it got physical. I just took my can't... phone and I kept saying, don't take my phone because I had my map on there. I had already lost the map and the directions once because of that. But it was more than taking phone. your phone. But it, was it started, but that's why I pulled Kicking, over. scratching, hitting, physical. And all the names you can think of. So, I just, I'm just blown away by the fact that here you have suffered and struggled through 10 years of my active addiction and 15 years prior to that of me drinking heavily and done all this recovery work and you're here you are thrust right back in it again it's it's so I mean not only was it dangerous that you were 115 in the morning you and another woman who couldn't stand up she was so drunk on the side of a highway you know the the what could have happened physically to you two is terrifying but just it's just so unfair like you should never have to be exposed to that again like you got out you got out you got out and then you were right back in and i just i i think i'm a lot more upset about it than you are At this point, I think you are. It still just makes me sad. And confused. And then I do have... Let's talk some... about the confused. I think that's what you're about to say. Sorry. But you... Were you going to say I have some guilt? I have guilt. And I feel like I didn't do a good job being responsible. When I think I should have called it earlier. And like two of them were even like, I can't drink anymore. Cut me off. Cut me off. And then I would say, they're not drinking anymore. And I'd move the drinks away. Or I'd take them away. And then the other person would like get more. So I couldn't keep three people from going to the bar. Well, that's what I mean. When you and, and when I, you say you feel guilty because you didn't cut it off. Like, I could see a scenario where you would have said, all right, that's it. We're going. And they would have said, you know what? We'll find our own way home. Fuck you. And you can take the car. Or those that's my car. Give me those keys. And I mean, I when you say you feel guilty, you, you don't. I mean, yes, sobriety is a gives you somewhat of an advantage, but it was three against one. And I know one of the three would have complied. But you, you don't necessarily, like, weren't you nervous that if you had tried to, to take control, they would have told you to fuck off? I mean, when, you, when you're when saying I go back you to feel guilty because you didn't say that's it and call it, <laughs> how do you call it with a bunch of drunk people? <clears throat> I guess at the state where I feel like I could have said that's it and called it, and I mean, I did. At one point, I was like, that's it, we're going. And unfortunately, we had to go up to the bar to get the ID to turn in the darts. They were like, one more, and I said, no, we're done. And we're going out the side door, so we didn't even have to pass another bar, because this place has multiple bar setups. So, I mean, I guess, like, that's why I feel like I could have been guilty, because I feel like there was some sort of semblance of control, but it was like once then... But one person... 
like drank the leftover shots that were at the table that we had pushed aside. And then I know. And then there was, you know. You also feel guilty because um, when the person who owned the car was getting really elevated and really yelly and really mean and eventually physical, you uh, you fired back. You lost control uh, verbally and called that person names. Yes. And that's one of the things you felt most guilty about when I picked you up. Right. And then just in the altercation of fighting them off of me, I was not... I don't want to come across as a saint. I was like... I could really harm this person at this point because I'm so worried and scared. You. And I'm bigger than this person. You. And I ended up, like, scratching this person and you, because it caught my nail and I feel bad. This you, person's going to have a scratch on their face. You're in your young 50s. Who the fuck needs you're to do that? You're a mother of four. You have removed yourself from this scene. And you're in a physical altercation. I just, I am blown away. Yeah. I can't, this is not, this is, and part of it is because we have spent six and a half years now in sobriety. This is not the world we live in. We, through the the program, through Echoes and Shout Sobriety and through the program, yes, you know, we get asked all the time, how can you continue to go there and be emotionally involved with these situations? I guess it's because we're not physically involved with these situations. And, this this is this is not okay to get dragged back in actively involved like this and so and but part of what why i brought up the fact that you fired back is you know we tell people all the time every day alcohol changes you alcohol doesn't just change the drinker it changes the loved one of the drinker who's exposed to it in to that degree and the things that you say as the loved one, they're not your fault. It's not your fault that when you're dealing with an irrational drunk person that you call them names. That is not your fault. And so you've given that advice to probably over 100 people. And yet you feel guilty for calling names to the person. You know, like in your brain, like when you look back, you think, I was a sober person. I could have been rational. And I mean, I'm looking... I'm thinking back through the scenario and I kept thinking I did keep my cool for a freaking hour plus of like getting told I'm going the wrong direction and getting told I'm I'm not doing this or and just that back and forth and the flip flop like that goes on and that like incoherence of you know the person that was passed out in the back the person that was in the passenger seat causing the trouble didn't know where they were and they're like we've got to call them and I'm like they're in the back call the phone call the I was like I have their phone up here they're in the back yeah so drunk that they wanted you to call and check on and a person that, that was sitting in the back seat and even and you know without even turning around to look yeah you know so that's Besides just, just the physical altercation, the that level was, of intoxication. Yeah, besides like the physical altercation that was about to get started, which I pulled over to turn put this person around to show them. Like you feel like you can kind of reason and rationalize and be calm with someone that's that drunk, and it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. You know. So, I think 
I think one of the takeaways, again, this is not a well-thought-out podcast episode. This is a processing in real-time situation, which we've done before. Um, But I think one of the big takeaways is if you are in a relationship with an alcoholic where they're constantly drinking, you know, consistently drinking, let me put it that way, and these off-the-rail moments are something you worry about and fret about and anticipate, and you react negatively when they happen, and then later you feel guilty for your reaction, you need to cut yourself some slack and give yourself a bunch of grace. Because here is a person, here is my wife, who hasn't been involved in a situation like this in many, many years. And she unexpectedly got dragged into this, dragged back down into this hellhole. And even though she knows all that she knows, she's still beating herself up for the way she reacted. So it's uh, an unforgiving, unrelenting disease. And the reason we're going to title this episode Blame the Alcohol, Not the Ism is because it doesn't matter if there's addiction at play or not. It doesn't matter how often this happens. That alcohol is a toxin. It is a poison. It does awful things to people. It doesn't it doesn't take addiction for life-threatening events to take place and for things to spin off the rails. This is not a substance meant for human consumption. And I know I'm getting all bandwagging, you know, on my soapbox, I should say. Not bandwagon, soapbox. But I'm really, really upset for what you had to go through. And then part of that is the three other people have very little recollection of what happened and what's going on. And one person has a little bit more knowledge that I haven't spoken to because just they were in, well, I guess I say all of them were just informed third party. Yeah. Of what happened. Yeah. And, and the behavior, like, I know I did that, I'm sure, but I can't ever see being that, being my age and doing this. No, this is ridiculous. So I'm glad, just so glad you're safe. And the thing I told you that night at three o'clock in the morning when we were staring at the ceiling and with no hope of sleeping was I'm so thankful because I do love these other three people and I'm thankful that you were there. And even though you're beating yourself up for how you handled it, you know, God knows how tragically it could have ended if you hadn't been there. Um, Because... You definitely um, protected them to a degree that I think some of them will never understand. So, and I don't necessarily, again, think that these are, I mean, I don't know. If if there is, if some of, if one or two of them have crossed the line into addiction, I don't know. I'm not here to say that. I'm here to say it doesn't matter if they're addicted or not. The alcohol is what, and the poor behaviors they made after consuming the alcohol is what caused this 
potentially tragic event to unfold. Thanks for talking it through with me. You're welcome. I love you, and I'm so thankful that you were there and thankful that you're safe. Well, I'm thankful you came to get us. Always. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.